0: The Bible has four biographies of Jesus. We call them Gospels, and they all begin in a unique way. The Gospel according to Matthew begins with a genealogy that connects Jesus' birth all the way to Abraham. The Gospel according to Mark, it begins right in the action with Jesus being baptized. The Gospel according to Luke begins with a note from Luke about why he wrote the biography and how he went about writing it. And of all the introductions, the gospel according to John is the most unique. John begins with a highly designed artistic poem that connects Jesus to the story of the Hebrew Bible and to Yahweh himself. John's prologue is personal, poetic, and it's powerful. I mean, like John knew and loved this guy
1: who got killed and then who he somehow had these crazy encounters with and saw the empty tomb and it just blew the categories for everything and now he's trying to share with us the most important thing he could tell us before telling
0: the story of jesus and this is it the prologue introduces jesus this way in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was God." which sounds depending
1: on your view of reality could sound like a just a crass contradiction in logic <laughs> How could something be with something and also that thing? If it's with it, it's separate from it. To which John, I think, would just say, I'm inviting you into a different view
0: of reality. I'm John Collins. Welcome to Bible Project Podcast. Today, I talk with Dr. Tim Mackey and Dr. Carissa Quinn. And together, we look at the literary design of the prologue to the gospel according to John. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. All right, we are together as uh, a, a three-person crew again because we're working on the visual commentary series. And so we have Tim Mackey. Hey, Tim. John, hello. And Carissa Quinn. Hi, Carissa. Hey, guys. And uh, today we get to talk about a, uh, a section of Scripture, which is the prologue to the Gospel of John. It's not an entire chapter. It's, it's 18 verses, John 1 through 18. And it's this coherent literary unit that is is wonderful. And I'm excited to talk through it with y'all. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is bringing to a conclusion kind of our first, well, f- what for us was a pilot project of the visual commentary series. So we thought about, oh, what's a short series we could do to just explore this new medium of doing visual commentaries. So it's been all around passages in the Bible that are built off of Genesis 1 and themes of creation. So this is the only New Testament book that we're doing. It'll be the first New Testament book. Yeah. A section, literary unit that we're exploring. And what better than the poetic prologue to John, because it begins with the same words Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. Genesis 1, the first sentence of Genesis. (laughs) Perfect. In the beginning. Mm -hmm. So maybe one way to frame this is first to back up real quick here. So in the New Testament, there are four accounts of the story of Jesus, and each of them in its own way Is connected back to the circle of the first followers around Jesus, the people who sat at his feet, followed him around Galilee, part of the original circle. And so, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are tracing through, you know, a set of connections back to people who were either in that circle. Or, you know, were co-workers of the people in that circle. So Mark referring traditionally to the John Mark that worked with Peter and Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. Okay. And then Luke is following a, a series of connections back to the Luke that Paul names in one of his letters calls him the physician. So uh, Matthew is connected back through a whole other set of complicated connections, but John is one of the four that's actually also the most unique from the other three. Mm -hmm. The other three shared common sources and redeployed them in their accounts. And John is aware of all the same stories and traditions, but he's given his account a very unique stamp.
2: Yeah, he writes it differently.
1: Yeah, it just feels different. (laughs) And Jesus talks often differently than he does in the other three. And so uh, that itself is an interesting thing you know, to explore, but um, the speaking voice that begins the story here is not that of Jesus, it's of the the narrator who's going to speak throughout the rest of the account and tell the story of Jesus. But all of the Gospels have their own unique beginning, but John in particular has a poetic prologue that previews the whole story to follow, Hmm. and none of the other Gospels have a beginning that's quite like this. Um, most of them kind of just get the narrative going in their own ways. But this prologue is truly a prologue in terms of it's not yet the beginning of the narrative proper. It's an anticipation, a poetic cast of previewing what the whole thing's going to be about.
2: Is it like a summary up front then?
1: Mm-hmm, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a summary that's introducing you to the key themes and ideas, motifs, imagery, But also it's placing the story of Jesus in a bigger context. It's saying, dear reader, if you want to understand the Jesus who you're going to meet in here, what you need to know is that you got to go all the way back to the beginning. What John is going to do in this prologue is essentially blend together a whole bunch of Hebrew Bible hyperlinks as a way of showing how Jesus is the reality to which uh, the whole storyline of the Hebrew Scriptures were pointing. But not just the storyline, every important image Hmm. that you know that becomes a symbol of God, the God of Israel, the Creator, whether that's God's Word Hmm. or God's light or God's truth or God's child, God's son, God's glory, the temple, the Torah, Uh, These are all like really core images associated with God's character in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And he's not just saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the story. He's saying that Jesus is the reality to which all of those images in the Hebrew Bible were pointing. He he is the thing that all of those are referring to. Hmm. And so it's a, a little bit more unique of a move than how the other three Gospels portray Jesus as the kind of climax of the biblical story
2: yeah so this prologue is super packed with images with theology and i'm looking at the structure that you outlined here it's highly structured it's highly structured really two parallel panels six parts Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's pretty amazing
1: yeah so here, yeah, I'll make a few macro observations and see what you guys think about it, or maybe I'll say what I think is being clear, and then you can tell me if I'm not making any sense. So it begins uh, with a, pr- a pr- pretty famous beginning of four short poetic lines. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. After those four poetic lines. Something begins that is something that feels like a narrative thread. It talks about how in that word was life, and the life was the light coming into the darkness. Then we're told that John the Baptist all of a sudden appears, (laughs) and he's bearing witness to the light, telling other people about the light. Then we get the story about how the light came into the world, uh, but some people didn't want to receive the light. and. They want to live in the darkness. But then there are some people who do want to receive the light, and then they become reborn as children of God. And so that's the first kind of sequence. The light enters the world. John bears witness to the light. The light is rejected by some, received by others who are born from above. That's the first kind of sequence. And you're like, oh, yeah, sounds like a pretty good summary (laughs) of what John's about to say. First, let's just say all of that imagery, light and dark, Mm creation, um, people be, humans being born. This all feels like I'm in the world of Genesis 1 and, and 2. Yeah. Starting in verse 14, a new movement appears, and you can feel the shift in the language and the imagery. And, and it's probably more, one of the more well-known verses. And the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father. Now, if you're just thinking in terms of narrative, the word became flesh, and we saw his glory. If you're following this narrative flow, I think a thoughtful reader would come to the conclusion: Didn't this already happen?
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. I th-
1: I thought the light already came into the darkness. Right. And like was interacting with people. If this is a referring to the incarnation, didn't it already happen back in verse three?
2: Right, because we've already heard that some people received him, some people didn't.
1: Yeah. So what's happening, again, this, it's a poetic prologue. We're actually restarting, and we're going to tell the same story of Jesus' incarnation to what happened, but we're now going to do it with a different set of images. But, and we're going to do it now, not with the language of Genesis 1, but with the language of the, the tabernacle, mm. the story of God's presence coming to the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. So the word becomes the tabernacle, and the divine glory that went over the tabernacle Is Jesus. Then the next step in the story is all of a sudden back to John the Baptist again, Mm -hmm. bearing witness. And you're kind of like, "Uh, this already happened. (laughs) Yeah. So John gives another speech. And then you get a third kind of movement to the second retelling of the story that's talking about how we received grace and truth through Jesus. And then you get a concluding line, which is verse 18. No one has ever seen God, ever. The one and only God who is in the the bosom or the lap of the Father, that one has made known...
2: Dot, dot, dot.
1: <laughs> and that's, uh, that's how the prologue ends. Yeah. So it, the whole point is that if you just look at it from a narrative perspective, it seems like we retell the same story twice. But if you pay close attention, it's because... We're cycling through the same basic idea. It's a summary of the book you're about to read, but through two different lenses, as it were. So you can think about the story of Jesus using Genesis 1, and you get verses 3 through 13, from light to light entering the darkness, John the Baptist. Some people stay in the dark. Some people receive the light and are born from above. That's take one. Take two. Let's think about this whole story you're going to read in the rest of the book but from the perspective of God coming to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. So now all of a sudden, Jesus is the divine glory light, not just the light of creation in day one, but he's the divine glory light. He comes to dwell among us. You get John the Baptist appearing again, which from a narrative perspective, you're like, he, he already came. Mm-hmm. But you're like, no, no, he ha- we're retelling the story all over again. So here's John's role. He bears witness. And then after that, you get a group of we who received the word that came to dwell among us, that's like those who received and became the children of God in the first take. But now in the second take, we receive grace and truth. And then you get another poetic little four-line concluder about this, no one's ever seen God, but there is this one, this child of God, who's in the lap of his father, and that one has made known, and then it ends. So, man, this thing's so beautiful. It just feels artsy, Yeah, doesn't it? yeah, it does. <laughs> like intentionally <laughs> well artsy to make you like force you to just keep rereading it like like it's Jewish meditation literature. Yeah. And I think that's entirely the point. Okay, so I've been I've been unpacking that. So, what are things that seem unclear, or maybe some questions that'll get us kind of probing some of the issues here
0: about the structure, or just about any any of the content?
1: Uh, Well, maybe about the structure. Maybe if one of you wants to summarize the movements, Mm -hmm. what you see
0: going on here. Yeah, you got the the two tellings, uh, and three in a three act structure. Mm -hmm. First telling is Jesus introduces light. John the Baptist comes, gives witness to the light, and then there's the reaction of how are you gonna to react to the light? And then that's paralleled with the second three-act structure, but Jesus as the tabernacle. And it makes perfect sense. And then you gave us a chart so that you could actually just see yeah. those two plays, essentially, and the acts, how they connect to each other. Yeah, Introducing Jesus as the light or the tabernacle, John bearing witness, and then the reaction. Yeah, it's just very, very clear. And then it's just so full of all this, like you said, of Hebrew Bible imagery is just packed in here. All these hyperlinks, so you can just swim in here for yeah. for a long time, just thinking about this stuff.
2: Yeah, and the first the first story is pulling from Genesis and creation. The second from Exodus and the tabernacle.
1: Mm-hmm. For me, the little oddity that I could never quite make sense of until mm-hmm. this hit me like a ton of bricks was the fact that John appears twice. Yeah, Doing the same thing as if right. As if it hadn't already happened. Yeah. yeah. And this is just a good rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. When you're reading a story and it feels overly repetitive, usually mm, that's a yeah. clue that there's some kind of design.
0: There's a structure
1: happening. Structure yeah. happening that feels funky if you read it only linearly. Right, right. Yes. It usually means that the text is designed to be read in multiple dimensions, um, not just linearly, but then also read
0: symmetrically. Yeah. That's actually a really good thing to point out because that happens often right. in the oh, Hebrew totally. Bible. Yeah, that's Where right. you're just like, it just feels clunky mm-hmm. in, in our English minds because mm-hmm. it's not how we would tell a story. It's like, yeah. you've, you've told me that detail already. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. And, the, and usually the reaction is, these ancient authors, mm-hmm. they're just so primitive and they like, can't just be clear and concise.
2: Mm. <laughs> or, right. or different sources woven together accidentally oh, okay. overlapping. Yep.
1: Yep, that's a very prominent view about the composition of biblical literature, is it's the amalgamation of different sources and mm-hmm. traditions, mm-hmm. and it's incoherent. Yeah, it, it actually doesn't make sense. And man, the, I mean, the greatest teachers I've had here are some colleagues of mine in Hebrew Bible, uh, David Andrew Teeter mm-hmm. and William Tuman, really uh, brilliant Hebrew Bible scholars who have helped me see that biblical literature is designed to be read both linearly, but then also in multi dimensions, there are often symmetrical patterns mm-hmm. where you're meant to, your mind is joining together pieces that are connected, not in linear sequence, but in a, a symmetrical sequence.
0: Yeah. And the value out of that is, in, for here as an example, is now as you're realizing that the introduction of Jesus as the light mm-hmm. is now connected, juxtaposed against. Jesus as the tabernacle and the glory. Which is light. Yeah. Yeah, which is light. And so now you're reflecting on that juxtaposition because mm-hmm. you noticed this new dimension to the text. Yeah. That's not linear. Yeah. But is yep. I don't know what you would call it.
2: Parallel, maybe.
0: Is it parallel, yeah. yeah. It's also similar to the fact
1: that John appears two times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's interesting, the first time it says he came to bear witness so that others might believe. And But it does leave you wondering, well, what did he say?
2: Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And so the second time he appears, it's just a short John bore witness, and then you get what he said. Mm -hmm. And what he says is, the one who comes after me has been in front of me because he was before me. (laughs) (laughs) And that becomes a way of kicking you all the way back to... He was in the beginning mm. with God. Mm. It's a, mm-hmm. But those two little bits about John are actually meant to be joined together as one idea. Yeah. But they've been split apart so you can have a John bit in both both sequences.
2: Yeah, so this is a good point to make, too, that when you hear repetition, and if you can outline it or see the text, that's super helpful. But when you hear a repetition, you can consider those things parallel, like those... Mm-hmm. those pieces of the text as these like parallel chunks. And there's repetition, but there's also movement or something that's going to be a little bit different. Yeah. So in the first part, we went from he was the light. And now we see his glory in the second part. Um, with John, you hear that he bears witness. And now we hear what he is saying in the second section. And in the third section, we see some people reject him, some people receive him. And then the, the third part of that parallel section is just we have received him and then the narrative moves forward after that so yeah. there's there's a movement even when there's repetition in it it still pushes the story forward
0: we totally appreciate this in music
1: mm. oh sure yeah the cyclical right?
0: yes and then bill it builds on the tune but in literature that this is something kind of unique to jewish literature mm-hmm. um, that i mean i'm sure we'll find Parallels it. Actually,
1: yeah, this was a rhetorical persuasion technique that is used in other ancient and recent literature. It's used in Greco-Roman literature, but it is used to a degree that, as far as we know, is pretty unparalleled hmm. in biblical literature in terms of the the volume hmm. <laughs> of <laughs> literature that's organized both linearly and also in these symmetrical patterns. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it feels more natural to find that. At least for me in poetry that oh, we can we can recall different sections of text. It doesn't have to be linear when I'm reading poetry. there could be repetition. yeah, and I think that's something that's really interesting as I've been reading more biblical narrative is that narrative actually works a lot like poetry in the Hebrew Bible. yes so even even when it's telling a story, there are these, yeah, like poetic structures.
0: Yeah, I wish we had time to just open up maybe one Hebrew Bible story and just show that really quick.
1: Actually, well, the first one.
2: <laughs> Genesis. Oh, yeah, Genesis, Genesis one. one.
1: So, uh, so we haven't gone there yet. Yeah, but we should. The design of the prologue. And this was uh, New Testament scholar uh, Mary Coloe, who's written multiple academic and popular books on the Gospel of John. I came across this way of seeing the literary design in her book called God Dwells With Us, uh, Temple Symbolism in the Fourth Gospel. (laughs) Mind-blowing. Mary Callow's book was the first scholar that drew attention to this for me. It was one of those things where I think about Genesis 1 so much, I can't believe I didn't see it. (laughs) But her point, the literary design of the prologue to John, is exactly the literary design of uh, the creation narrative of Genesis 1. It has a little four line introduction. Oh. Then it has two sequences of three that are parallel to yeah, each other. Right.
2: Yeah. And in Genesis one it's the six days.
1: Six days. Days one, two, three, and then days four, five, and six go back and parallel days one, two, and three in exact mm-hmm. vocabulary yeah. in order. And then you get a short little poetic, dense concluder that is in John's prologue, open-ended. So it's just kind of, it has a little short poetic introduction, short poetic conclusion, and two triads of three that match each other. And the moment she pointed this out, or the moment I thought it was just like, oh, yes. And of course, he chooses the first words of Genesis 1 to begin it, but he's not just Mm -hmm. got Mm -hmm. Genesis 1 on the brain for the language and imagery. He's literally imitated Mm -hmm. the design. The structure. Yes. (laughs) Okay, now watch what Mary does here. This is really cool. So recall how in Genesis 1, the seventh day is about the completion. It begins by saying, and so were completed, the skies and the land. Mm. And so God, you know, blessed the seventh day. He set it apart as holy. It's very much a note of conclusion, that little ender. Yeah. And what she pays attention to is that John's little ender that stands in the same slot as day seven is intentionally non-conclusive. It ends with an incomplete sentence in Greek. <laughs> so I'm just going to read from her. She says, um, the six strophes, and strophe is her way of saying paragraph. It's a paragraph in poetry, a strophe, a group, a group of lines that makes up a paragraph in poetry. Nice. So she says, the six strophes or paragraphs of John's prologue, like the six days of creation in Genesis 1, require one final act to bring it to completion. This act will begin in verse 19 after the prologue as the gospel narrative of God's final work that began with the incarnation will culminate in the life and the death of Jesus. Until the story of Jesus' final work has been told, therefore, there can be no seventh day to the prologue. Mm. But utilizing the structure of Genesis, but also breaking from its pattern, the very design of the prologue asserts there is still something more yet to come. Mm-hmm. Okay, so get this: when Jesus is on the cross, and his final words are "It is finished," mm-hmm. the Greek word he uses is the same root word as the Genesis, as the seventh day in Genesis, and the and so we're finished. The sky is in the land. Oh wow! It's so cool. So she's convinced. I mean, you get she, you get her argument here: that mm-hmm. his, the Jesus death and then the empty tomb is the seventh day. Completion to the prologue So it becomes a bookend around the entire account Isn't that rad?
2: It's like new creation made complete
1: Yeah, I'm certainly persuaded Let's just go back to the last sentence of the prologue. And then maybe if you want to go back and we can unpack some of the stuff going on in the six paragraphs. But the last sentence of it is in the translation that I've, that I've put here, no one has ever seen God. So it's kind of stating a core claim of the biblical tradition. And this actually comes from something God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yeah. When he's in the cave, no, no human can see me and live.
2: Yeah, that's why he has to see his back instead. Yeah.
1: And what passes in front of him is the glory of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What he sees is the glory, which, of course, is what John is saying. That's what Jesus is. So this is John's way of making the classic Jewish-Christian-theist move of saying, even when God reveals part of God's own self to us, it's not like we can ever comprehend the divine being in all of its majesty. We're only ever seeing or experiencing a part. Mm -hmm. So no one can ultimately see God. However, this story is going to be about how the one and only God— what does that mean? Well, for John, the one and only God is, includes the one who is in the lap of the Father. So in the opening little four lines, he called the pre-incarnate Jesus the word of God, and he's God and with God. So now here he's using a different metaphor to make the same point. Just like a word can be God's word, but also distinct from God. So also mm-hmm. you have a child yeah. who's in the lap of the Father, who's both God God and distinct from God as father and son. And then the last line is an incomplete sentence in Greek, which is that one, that is the one and only God who is in the lap of the father. That one has, and uses a, a Greek uh, word, exegeo, which means, it's where we get the English word exegesis, hmm. yeah. which means to bring out the meaning, hmm. to make known the meaning. Yeah, And so in Greek, he says, that one has exegeoed. He's brought out the meaning, but... There's no object to the verb in Greek. Mm, The meaning of what? The meaning of who or what. And all of our English translations can't tolerate that incomplete sentence. (laughs) So they supply the object, which is, he has made him known. That is, uh, the son has made known the father. And that is what John means. Yeah. But he hasn't supplied the ending of the sentence precisely so that you read the story to find out what the son is going to make known.
0: What the object of that totally. is. But it's kind of one of these is the funny, story.
1: I get why the translations need to create a complete sentence, but at the same time, it, it actually undoes what John, I think, is trying to, trying to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That's great. Yeah, it's so rad.
2: Yeah, that's cool. So the intro and conclusion to the prologue are making the similar point that the word or the one and only God, how they're referred, how Jesus is being referred to here as the word in the, in the intro, the one and only God and the conclusion was both God and with God. Yeah. Both God and distinct from God.
1: With different images. First, the word, and then second, with the son and the father.
2: The son, yeah, the child.
1: Yeah, two different metaphors that are trying to get at mm-hmm. the same reality. Yeah.
0: So let's double-click on that and, and talk about that a little bit. So previously, we, all three of us, walked through Proverbs 8 and it's this reflection on God's wisdom mm. personified as Lady Wisdom. And we made the observation that the way Proverbs 8 is designed is to make God's wisdom in the slot of God's word in Genesis 1.
1: And the spirit in Genesis 1, yeah.
0: And spirit. As God creates order out of chaos, he does that through his speech and then through the spirit of God, the Ruach of God, the God's life energy and and we talked about how there's this very Jewish way of thinking about God, which is when you experience God what you are and you and you mentioned it earlier, Tim, you can't see God but you are experiencing God not something less than God but it is separate than God
1: or distinct I, I've come to find the word distinct to be the only English word ah, distinct. That- says both enough but not too much
0: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: it is god but it's also something distinct from god (laughs) yeah reaching out to me
0: and so the one image is is of a word so when i when i give a word Mm. that's my thoughts and desires and it's that coming out from me but once that word comes out it's distinct from me it can go do stuff Mm -hmm. Yeah, the word can get captured on a page and then it can live outside of my life. And then in Genesis 1, it goes out and it creates. This is pretty intuitive for if you say,
1: I would like something to drink. And then that creates an effect in the room. And so maybe Mm -hmm. then one of your boys is in the room and he hears that word. And he's like, oh, dad, there's like a fizzy water in the fridge. And then all of a sudden your word (laughs) went out and interacted with Mm -hmm. another. And then like Uh, something happened in the
0: world. Mm.
1: Based on this thing that came from you.
0: And it's you. He's interacting with yeah, you. It's your word. Your son in that example. But but really was interacting with something distinct from you, which was your word that came out. Yeah. And this is a this very Jewish way of thinking about mm. interacting with yeah. and experiencing God. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, and it's rooted in the Genesis one creation narrative where God speaks yeah. things into existence. So God's word go goes out and creates
1: yeah, it's, it's a fundamental conviction of the biblical portrait of God, which is Israelite and Jewish that becomes Christian, is that God is other than creation. God precedes creation. That God's own being is the ground. <laughs> In other words, God's not a part of creation. So anytime I interact with God here within creation, it's because some aspect of God has reached out to me that's not the whole of God but it is a part of God. But once I'm here in creation interacting with it and then it becomes a part of me, then it's both God and distinct from God. So that's God's wisdom, God's word.
0: And so it makes sense for John to say the word was with God and the word was God.
1: Which sounds, depending on your view of reality, could sound like a just a crass contradiction in logic. <laughs> How could something be with something and also that thing? If it's with it, it's separate from it. To which John, I think, would just say, "I'm inviting you into a different view of reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> where those t- where two plus two makes five, one plus one equals one, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or one plus one plus one equals
2: exactly, one. yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah." So, I, but just notice he's doing heavy duty theological, philosophical thinking mm-hmm. here in the form of poetry yeah. through poetic <laughs> parallelism, which is just quintessential biblical thought, you know.
0: Well, when uh, growing up, reading this. Mm. I think I was much more distracted by Greek philosophy because uh, the Greek word is logos, and there's a whole tradition in Greek philosophy around logos. Mm-hmm. And so I just really thought John was trying to translate Jesus into Greek philosophy. Sure. And what it seems like is that was just totally missing the boat. Like he's using a Greek word, but he's thinking in Hebrew.
1: Sure. However, I also think he was obviously a very sophisticated intellectual mind that produced this text
0: <laughs> yeah yeah obviously
1: it boggles the imagination to think that he w- he didn't also know that by using the word Lagos that he was creating an account that would have traction with any educated greek or roman who's you know read some of the classics and plato and and so on mm-hmm. so i think it, it's more about uh that John could use a word that has traction in two cultures and mean everything implied with it. Mm. And, um, you, know, you know, part of this is what's tricky is that for many English speakers who don't ever learn another language or don't grow up having to be multilingual, it's hard to have an imagination to think that you could think in two languages and two mm. cultures at the same time. But anybody who's grown up multilingual, yeah. this is just, it's normal. And if you're clever, you know how to communicate to multiple audiences at once. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Or he, sometimes he may just, or the authors may be doing that without even thinking about it. They're just using the categories that they they know that are familiar in the world around him. Yeah.
0: So intuitive. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, here I've just got, but it was just a, a quick little sketch here. This is in a quote from... Uh, George Beasley Murray, who wrote uh, the Commentary on John in the Word biblical commentary series. He's got a long quote, and he's talking about the, the genealogy, the heritage of this word, the Greek word logos, in its uh, history in Greek philosophy. So he says, for the great philosopher Heraclitus, the logos is the omnipresent wisdom by which all things are steered. It's the divine word received by the prophet, and it becomes almost equivalent to God. In Heraclitus' writings, for the Greek Stoic philosophers, the logos is the common law of nature, imminent in the universe, maintaining its unity, the divine fire or soul of the universe. In Philo of Alexandria, so here's a Jewish philosopher who had mastered the Greek philosophical tradition. He exploited the concept in a striking way. He saw the logos as the agent of creation, and he distinguished the Logos as a thought in the mind of God, his eternal wisdom, mm. and its expression in making a formless matter into a universe. The Logos is the medium of divine government of the world. It's the captain pilot of the universe, according to Philo. <laughs> so there's just there's a quick sketch of this. The word Logos actually was really active in Greek philosophy.
0: So you really can't come at it from both both traditions for sure yeah and understand what john is doing
2: and both traditions seem they seem really similar too. the Uh, yes i think so the hebrew or the biblical hebrew understanding of of god's speech going out creating order and that being a parallel idea to god's eternal wisdom creating order and those things being almost equivalent to god yeah yeah they seem really really overlapping or just similar ideas yeah
1: what you're saying is that Genesis 1, in its own way, and now John, by activating the Hebrew of Genesis 1, he's saying Genesis 1 is making a contribution to this same topic mm. that's happening in his world in Greek philosophy, which is, what is ultimate reality? And what's the relation of the ultimate divine reality to our contingent, you know, constantly changing and adapting world that we live in? And so the word logos, the word is the word that's used, mm. so it's as if he, he's kind of he wants to show how Genesis one makes a contribution to that conversation in his day, and then make a claim about Jesus that Jesus is that word. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to rehabilitate your background, John, to say like I don't cool. think that was right. off. It may be have imbalanced. Maybe it was because in your background, however, maybe the what was really going on in the Hebrew of Genesis one wasn't fully emphasized, and so what you heard is about greek philosophy but it's it's actually both at the same time
0: well i think what i by not seeing the hebrew thought i think there was this general trend of me not seeing these jewish ideas Mm -hmm. and then relying too heavily on greek ideas and where that got a lot more messy Mm -hmm. was in ideas of the soul ah i see and and that kind of stuff but that's a whole nother yeah
1: (laughs) that we've been talking about for for years now Okay. So here's here's something interesting. You guys want to see something else that's cool? Yeah. It also seems like John is using not only Genesis 1 to try and unpack the significance of Jesus. He's also doing a whole biblical theology of characters in the Hebrew Bible that function as these divine agents who are God and distinct from God at the same time. So we've talked about some of them. So... In Genesis 1, you have this phrase, in the beginning, Elohim created the skies and the land. You have the spirit of Elohim Mm -hmm. out there in the dark waters, and then Elohim speaks a word. So right there, you have Elohim, the spirit of Elohim, and then Elohim's word. That's in Genesis 1. In Proverbs 8, which we did a whole conversation, the three of us on, Mm -hmm. Proverbs 8 is itself hyperlinking to Genesis 1, Mm -hmm. and in the slot of the divine word and spirit, Lady Wisdom speaks up in Proverbs and says, Yahweh brought me forth or possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his ancient works, there I was from the beginning. I was beside him. So John is for sure drawing on that when he talks about the word that was God and was beside God or with God.
2: Yeah. And also in the, the lap of the father yeah. and that depiction of Lady Wisdom as yeah. a child growing up with good. God.
1: Yeah, that's right. So when he starts talking about all things came into existence through that word, there's a whole network of texts in the Hebrew Bible that talk about this idea. So we have the word of God, that's Genesis 1. We have the wisdom of God, that's Proverbs. But then also, look at this little line in Psalm 33, 6, that says, By means of the word of Yahweh, the skies were made, and by the breath of his mouth, the spirit of his mouth, all of their host." Mm -hmm. so the author of psalms 33 is doing the same thing (laughs) he's blending the spirit and the word and the wisdom this is all like one and so this is all that's all happening within the hebrew bible itself yeah okay so this blew my mind so um in jewish tradition just like when alexander the great did his thing stormed the ancient world in 300s bc and he spread the greek language everybody started using the greek language in the same way In the era before Alexander the Great, when the Persians were running the show, Alexander stole the world empire from the Persians. (laughs) Yeah, he borrowed that idea. The Persians were using Aramaic, a form of international Aramaic, as a Semitic language. So that's not a native Persian language. Native Persian language is Farsi, it's Persian. But um, they used Aramaic as the international language. Mm. And so that became so widespread in that early period, that many uh, Jewish communities started translating the, the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, which is kind of like going from like French into Italian. So I think they're you know they're both
0: very closely related.
1: So, all right. So these early Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible are called um, targums or Aramaic targums. So one of these very uh, early, it's called Targum Neophyte of Genesis one. I'm just gonna read a translation of it from you, and then we can talk about it. So this was this is. A translation made by jewish scholars for jewish communities around what time ah it's the million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh targum is very difficult to date targum neafidi seems to emerge right after the second temple period which means that it is reflecting a, a way of reading the bible from the temple period around the time of jesus and before so you could actually translate it two ways the aramaic on two ways and i think it's on purpose so I'll, I'll start with uh, the first one. So this is a translation and an interpretation of Genesis 1, 1 through 3. So it reads in Aramaic, From the beginning, by means of wisdom, the Son of Yahweh completed the heavens and the earth. And the earth was waste and unformed, desolate of man and beast, empty of plants and trees, darkness was spread over the abyss, And a spirit of mercy was from before the Lord blowing over the waters. Hmm. And the word of the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light according
0: to the decree of his word. This doesn't feel like a translation.
1: Yeah, the the Targum, especially Targum Neafidi, it's like, um, it's a paraphrase.
0: Hmm. It's like the message.
1: (laughs) It is. It's like Eugene Peterson's The Message. It's an interpretive paraphrase Hmm. in Aramaic. But dude, check the first line from the beginning. Yeah, by means of wisdom, wisdom. wisdom. the son of Yahweh completed the heavens and the
0: earth. Yeah, they're just they're tracking with all of this. That is cool. It is cool.
1: Now, here's the thing: is that the word "son" in Aramaic is exactly the same sequence of letters as the word "create" bara (laughs) in Hebrew. Oh, so there's multilingual wordplay going on you could equally translate this Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible to read, From the beginning, by wisdom, the word of Yahweh created and completed the heavens and the earth.
0: Ah, which makes a little bit more sense that they would get there first.
1: Sure. But the question is, is it that inconceivable for a Jewish author who's steeped in the whole Hebrew Bible to conceive of God's word and wisdom and child? Son. Yeah. And you're like, Man, we're already there in Proverbs eight, where wisdom is the child of the creator yeah. participating and present there. And all of a sudden John one, you feel
0: like, oh John one Yeah. He didn't invent some new thing.
1: That's it. That's it. He's drawing on yeah. a way of thinking about how God it relates to the world that's has deep roots in the in the Jewish tradition, their way of thinking about God. The rooted in the Bible itself. And the innovation is not saying that God would interact and enter into relationship with creation. The innovation is saying Jesus of Nazareth is that
0: person. Is that. Hmm. Yeah. That's where the shocker comes. Yeah. So there's still a shocker in John 1. And the shocker isn't because it's a person necessarily. It's because it's, uh, it, it wasn't a king who ruled Israel. It was someone killed as a rebel. Yep. How could that be? The, the son of Yahweh, the word... In the lap of the father.
1: And, of course, that's exactly what he's setting you up for, <laughs> mm-hmm. is that, that scandal. And think, that's why, think, okay, let's now range broader in the, in the prologue. The whole, the, of the, each set of the sequences, it's about the light or the glory entering into creation. Mm-hmm. There was a venerable, honorable witness to it, John the Baptist, who was honored. He was a controversial figure, but, you know, kings cared what John the Baptist thought. Herod did. Um, The Pharisees sure did. So he was a public figure who bore witness to the light, but yet the light entered the darkness and a whole bunch of people wanted nothing to do with the light. How does that work? And that's going to be like the surprise or the crisis that he wants to tell Is well. That's what happens when the light enters the darkness and some stay in the dark and some will find themselves born as new kinds of humans.
2: Yeah, what... What does John mean here when he talks about the light and the darkness? Like, what, is, what are mm. those concepts here? I mean, I know he uses these words throughout
1: mm-hmm. all
2: of his writings. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think as you follow darkness through the Gospel of John, it comes up yeah. quite a bit. And it becomes an image for the, the spiritual, non-human, animating forces of evil and darkness. It's akin to the spiritual powers in the Hebrew Bible. Were the principalities and the powers in Paul's thought. And it's the anti-creation forces. Mm. If God's word is drawing people in to participate in the ordering of the world, the darkness is a part of what is dragging humans back into destruction and disorder and chaos. And so John sees the rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel in his execution as an attempt of the darkness mm. to, to overcome the light. And of course, with the empty tomb and the resurrection, the whole story is going to be about how the darkness couldn't overcome the light. At least I think that's what's going on.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, here it sounds like he's already looking forward to the death of Jesus by saying the darkness did not overcome it, but also drawing on uh, just those those two maybe ways of life, creation, new creation in, in Jesus, this new life where the light, is shining into humanity and all the Genesis, all of this Genesis repetition or illusion. So there's new life and new creation in Jesus. And then there's the anti-creation or the de-creation forces of darkness in the world too. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, I think in Genesis 1, the light doesn't eliminate the darkness. It sort of like contains it. Mm -hmm. And then every day contains a cycle of light and dark. But the darkness doesn't overcome it. The sun always comes again, leading up to the seventh day that has no evening. Like all the days, remember, we've talked about this before, all the days of creation in Genesis 1 have, and there was evening and morning. But the seventh day has no evening. It's like the light wins on the seventh day. And I think that's what John's capitalizing on that momentum of, there reaches a moment where darkness is not able to overcome the light anymore.
2: You know, when I read this prologue, I feel like John the Baptist, the witness, is it surprises me a little bit. And I'm a little underwhelmed by the role of John the Baptist. Like, I I think I don't have a good understanding of why it's so important to the authors to put right here, central, two times that John bore witness.
1: Yeah. It's like you're talking about a cosmic conflict. Yeah. Good and bad. And they're like, and there's this dude, John.
2: Yeah, like, what's the significance of coming as a witness?
1: My hunch here is this is where um, the fact, the historical facts on the ground, are meeting with the cosmic narrative that John wants to plug Jesus' story into. So, in other words, all four gospel authors make very certain to give the first moments of the stage to John the Baptist. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, I think it's th- this is kind of a bedrock in the eyewitness traditions of. When you tell the story of Jesus, the first thing we want to say is it all, like when this thing went public, it was all that thing that started with John. And so that's where you start the story. So to me, it's pretty cool because what it shows is that he's not just waxing eloquent and doing like cosmic biblical theology and just making it all up. He's he's actually telling the way we tell the Jesus story anchored in first century history, Hmm. but he's doing it in like a cosmic tune. Mm-hmm. with the Genesis and Exodus. So I've come to see that underwhelming bit as actually really cool because it's anchoring all of this really high-flying cosmic stuff, but anchoring it in actual events.
2: Yeah, and maybe it's also... Illuminating this ancient value of the eyewitness testimony also, and the the biography style totally that relies on witnesses so heavily.
1: You know, and actually, man, we haven't even talked about this, but almost all the key words and images here in the prologue are, you can trace them right on through, get a concordance, and they become big motifs through. So light and dark, life and death, but the witness. So John's the first witness, and then there's this big theme of People saying, Jesus, you know, you're your own witness. Your witness doesn't count. And Jesus says, well, my deeds are my witness. And the Father is a witness. And, mm. and the Samaritan woman bears witness to Jesus. And so the, the witness is a big meta-theme uh, in, in the gospel. So is birth and the sons of God, the Torah of Moses, glory, grace, belief, those who believe in his name. So he's also seeding all the key ideas they're gonna be at work throughout the rest of the, the account.
2: Yeah. Can we talk about this verse fourteen mm. just because it's so significant, the idea that Jesus is being called the tabernacle here, or the dwelling place. I know you I, I'm sure you guys have podcasted about that before. And I, I actually the image that comes to mind is the heaven and earth video mm-hmm. that we've made where doesn't Jesus become a tabernacle with legs? Yeah. 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 Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> <Totally>. I love <laughs> yeah, that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I'm pretty certain I need to take a a few more long walks on this one. Quite a few, probably. But more with about how the tabernacle was perceived, how Israelites thought about the tabernacle, because the tabernacle itself was an embodiment of divine glory. Not just the cloud that went over it, but all the gold and the jewels Mm. and the the curtain that had the heavens woven into it. And so the tabernacle was itself a kind of incarnation. Of God's splendor.
2: Yeah, what this would mean is that when John says that Jesus tabernacled with us or dwelt among us, it's not just that he came and dwelled with us, dwelt, dwelt, dwelled? Dwelt. Dwelt. But it's also that he was the incarnation of God.
1: Yeah, okay. If anybody wants to nerd out, this was a really cool resource. It's by scholar C.T.R. Hayward called The Jewish Temple, A Non-Biblical Sourcebook. So he's compiled together all of the writings or references or descriptions of the temple in all of Jewish literature outside the Bible to kind of put together a how did Jews think about the temple? And man, it's it is mind-blowing. Feels like they were like John's friends. <laughs> <laughs> the way they talk about the temple is using very incarnational language.
2: <laughs> That's cool.
1: And so again, what I think it shows is that John is he's using categories that have traction with his Jewish neighbors. To say, listen, we all know the tabernacle was like where God meets earth. And Jesus was that. It's not just the glory cloud that Jesus is the embodiment of. He's the
0: actual tent. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that is interesting. It's cool.
0: And you've described the tent before too as this like microcosm of creation. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Where all creation is meant to be God's temple, but it isn't um, in some way that hasn't come to fulfillment. And so the temple is a way to present that reality its own little, yeah.
2: With all the garden imagery in the temple, that's the center of creation or new creation, new life.
0: Yeah, is there anything else that you really wanted to touch on, Tim?
1: Oh, maybe just a quick thing about the Torah. Following on the, obviously the, the figure, the biblical character at the center of the tabernacle story
0: is uh, Moses. Yeah, because Moses gets the blueprints for the tabernacle, but he also gets the, the law.
1: Yeah, he gets the laws of the Torah and he sees the glory when he's in the cave. And that's precisely the moment God reveals himself saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, overflowing with loyalty loyal love, and truthfulness, or faithfulness. So look down at verse 16 and 17 of the prologue. He says, for from his fullness, and his for sure is referring to the word. Mm -hmm. So from the words fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We've been getting a lot of grace from the God of Israel for a long time. Mm -hmm. For the Torah... And
0: grace here meaning gifts. gifts.
1: Yeah, just generous overabundant, that's the fullness, the overflowing generosity
0: of God. And the Torah is a gift.
1: Yes, what he says, he names the first gift. The Torah was given through Moses, gift number one. Yeah. What a wonderful gift, the revelation of God's will. Some people think this is in contrast to what comes after. And so it's like, we got the Torah, but how much better is grace and truth came through Jesus the Messiah. So some people see a contrast there. Right. The Torah is like not a gift, and Jesus is the ultimate gift. And I think that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Torah was a gift through Moses.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's because of verse 16. It says, it calls both of those things grace. Whether, yep. whether it says grace upon grace or grace in place of grace, they're both gifts. They're both graces. Yeah.
1: Gift number one, the revelation of God's will through the Torah. Gift number two, the revelation of God's own generosity and truth through the Messiah, Jesus. And this language of fullness or overflowing with generosity and truth, this yeah. is for sure.
2: Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Yeah,
1: the attributes that God reveals on Mount Sinai.
2: Yeah, this full of grace and truth, That that is the Greek translation of full of... Yeah,
1: loyal love.
2: Loyal love and... And compassion. Truthfulness.
1: Yeah, and truthfulness. So, man, what's great is... So Jesus is not only the embodiment of the tabernacle and the glory, he's the embodiment of the character of Yahweh revealed to Moses when he forgave Mm -hmm. the Israelites from the golden calf. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of cool to think through. This is in this panel that's parallel to the first take of the story, which is where many of his own reject him. Yeah, the rebellion. But many received him. Yeah. So God's response, even to his own rebellious people, is to keep giving gifts. Mm. U- ultimate gift is the generosity through Jesus Messiah, sent even to people who didn't recognize him. But it was God's gift anyway. Yeah. Man, this is so awesome. I, uh, every time I come to the prologue, I feel like there's so much, not just deep theology and philosophy, but it's like moving. What he's trying to communicate about this guy he knew. I mean, like John knew and loved this guy who got killed, and then who he somehow he had these crazy encounters with and saw the empty tomb, and it just blew the categories for everything. <laughs> and now he's trying to share with us the most important thing he could tell us before telling the story of Jesus. And this is it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm struck by how deep and complex it is mm. theologically, how much it references the Hebrew Bible, but also how many maybe basic or foundational claims it's making about the person of Jesus. Like, this is maybe where we would go if we want to understand Jesus is God and he's there's a father, there's a, a son, he became flesh, he dwelt among us, he reveals the full person of God. These are really foundational claims hmm. about the person of Jesus, and they're also woven into this complex structure that reflects. The Hebrew Bible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a great example of a New Testament author and a follower of Jesus who was so in love with Jesus and so saturated with the scriptures in his mind and heart that when he writes about the Jesus he loves, out comes this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what a gift.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Bible Project Podcast. Next week, we're jumping back into our paradigm series.
2: Hi Tim and John, my name is Emily and I'm from Kansas City. How would you describe the difference between the scriptures being inspired versus inerrant to someone who comes from a tradition that emphasizes inerrancy?
1: So what's funky about the term inerrant is it's a reverse way. It's a negative. It doesn't have errors. (laughs) So, you could just flip it over. And when you flip it over and think about this idea, then we come to where scripture itself
0: develops vocabulary for it that scripture is truthful. Today's podcast was produced by Cooper Peltz. Our editors are Dan Gummel and Zach McKinley. And the show notes are by Lindsey Ponder. Our theme music is from the band Tense. The Bible Project is a nonprofit. We exist to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Everything that we make is free because of the generous support of many people all over the world just like you. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Hi, this is Sonia and I am from India. Hi, this is Curtis from Atlanta, Georgia. I first heard about the Bible Project in 2017 and I've been using the Bible Project as a study tool to prepare for illustrations and sermon notes. As a pastor, I love directing people to the Bible Project to help them learn and grow deeper in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I first heard about Bible Project is through Facebook. My favorite thing about the Bible Project is the visuals and the narration that weaves into a beautiful storytelling session. We believe that Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, classes, and more at BibleProject.com.